0: Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, and it's here where I'm gonna delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire, they're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments your suggestions or your questions directly to me at ceo at raincanada.com. that is ceo at r e i n and if you're inclined please share this podcast with your friends your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know rate the show and comment on itunes stitcher soundcloud or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in and while you're at it please follow me on the everyday millionaire facebook page So, thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Matthew Pollard, is responsible for five multi-million-dollar business success stories all before the age of 30. His humble beginnings, the adversity he's faced, and his epic rise to success show that anyone with the right motivation and the right strategies can achieve anything they set their minds to. Today, Forbes calls him the real deal. Global Gurus list him as a top three sales professional. Top Sales World Magazine named him a top 50 speaker, and Big Speak lists him as an international top 10 sales trainer. He's also the best selling author of The Introvert's Edge, which hit the Amazon charts as the eighth most sold book of the week, appears on HubSpot's list of the most highly rated sales books of all time, and was selected by Book Authority as the number two best introvert book of all time. His soon to be released second book, The Introvert's Edge to Networking, has already received endorsements from Harvard, Princeton, Neil Patel, Michael Gruber, and several others. Matthew loves to share his lessons and his stories that he's learned along the way on his journey to living his dreams. An amazing conversation today. Listen in. Enjoy. Matthew Pollard, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Thanks for joining me, man. I'm
1: ecstatic to be here. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Okay, so Matthew, we're going to get into this now. The introduction doesn't do really, you know, doesn't do justice what you do and what you've accomplished, of course. And so, what better way to start than to uh, answer the question for our viewers and our listeners? Matthew, when somebody asks you what you do, what's your answer?
1: So I say I'm the rapid growth guy, and you know the reason for why I do that is I find so many people commoditize themselves. They'll say I'm a ghostwriter, they'll say I'm a sales trainer, I'm a business coach, and the problem is that that generally leads to a conversation. Oh, I need that. How much do you cost? Which is the worst conversation in the world to have or oh that's nice mm-hmm. and then you wait and you feel obligated to ask them what they do and then you what if you're at a networking event you have to politely then excuse yourselves to what? Go to the bar, go to the restroom. So I call myself the rapid growth guy because it doesn't actually put me in a commodity bucket. And I believe it better signifies the actual experience and the benefit of working with me, which is why, you know, I frame myself that way. And everything that I do is around helping introverted service providers obtain rapid growth in their businesses.
0: Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. First off, you're based out of where? You're in the U.S. Where at?
1: Yeah, it doesn't quite sound like a US accent, I'll give you that. No, it doesn't, it doesn't.
0: (laughs) First off, what's the accent, just so everybody knows the difference between, you know, maybe Aussie or Kiwi, what what do you got going on, and and then where are you located?
1: Yeah, sure, I'll give everyone a second to kind of guess for themselves, but I'm from (laughs) Melbourne, Australia, and I think, you know, I've, I've heard... English. I've heard South African, New Zealand. You know, it's you know, it's always better and safer to go with New Zealand because I think that everybody from New Zealand gets upset if you if you get it wrong. But Australians are pretty used to being called English, South African, New Zealand, so you can totally get away with that. But I actually live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina now.
0: Oh, there you go. So you're a young man. uh, You've accomplished a lot of things, and of course, in this conversation, and well, first off, let's talk about a couple of books that you've written, or you know, one of one of the books that you've written, which was very, very popular. And then you've got another one that I think you're releasing. But let's talk about what your book is, what it's about. And I want to get to the conversation of introverts. So I know I'm bouncing around all over the place, but I'm trying to get down a path here. I I do have an intention, by the way, Matthew.
1: <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I think I gave you permission to that I wouldn't hold back during this interview. So feel free to ask any questions you like. And, you know, I think that it's a really important question about how this book kind of came about. So the answer is, you know, I am the author of The Introvert's Edge, and it's actually a series now. So the first book came out back in 2018. And I think it's sold about 55,000 copies now, and it's been translated into, I think we just hit 15 languages, which is exciting.
0: Congratulations. And it's
1: designed to help introverts. Thank you. It's designed to help introverts realize that they're not second-class citizens. Their path to success is just different to that of an extrovert and realize that they actually can outsell their extroverted counterparts, but not by trying to behave extroverted, but actually by leveraging a system That really allows them to channel their introverted strengths. And we launched that in, as I said, in 2018. And the sequel actually just came out in January. It's already sold over 10,000 copies. It's called The Introvert's Edge to Networking. And look, the books have won a bunch of awards. You know, I think that both books are kind of, well, the sales book, it's the only one in the genre, which is, I I couldn't believe there hadn't been a book written for it. And I have to admit, and, you know, I'll explain this in a second, I didn't want to be the one that wrote it, just no one else would. Mm -hmm. And then the networking book came out for, you know, really for the same reason. And I felt like there was a lot of people that were now closing deals, but they needed more leads. They needed to understand how to foster a relationship in a non-transactional or aimless way. So, you know, really my backstory though is, you know, and I, I think this is really important because a lot of people will look at someone like me. Or any introvert that's become successful, and we project extroversion upon them. Like, oh, it's easy for you. You've got that gift of gab. Never mind that Ivan Meisner, the founder of BNI, the world's largest networking group in the world, is introverted. Never mind that Zig Ziglar, probably the most well-known sales trainer in the world, is introverted. Oh, by the way, we can't do small talk either. I've heard you know introverts we can't do that. Except Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres, the two most well-known talk show hosts, also happen to be introverted. So. We project this extroversion upon successful people because we don't see where they came from. And for myself, I mean, I had a reading speed of a sixth grader in late high school. You know, I was super introverted. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And for the video audience, you know, I actually got diagnosed with this thing called Erlen syndrome at the age of 16, which means I put on this funny pair of colored lenses and miraculously, I can learn to read. Now, I, I can't learn to read like everybody else. And I've you know i got to start the process of learning. But going from a reading speed of a sixth grader, I hustled like crazy for the last two years of high school. And I got into the top 20% of my state. But my family could see, I mean, I just, I'd wiped myself out. I'd worked so hard to get there. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And we all agreed that if I was going to spend a, a year in university, I'd probably spit out. So we agreed that until... I found myself and worked out what I wanted to be doing. I would take a year off at least to, to figure it out. And, you know, I took a job at a real estate agency and yeah, okay, for the introverts listening, they're about to say, yeah, but oh, there we go, natural sales. No, I was the guy in the back office with a, a look at my face, don't speak to me, I'm here to just do data entry, right? Find myself. Well, three weeks into that job, and my manager comes up to me and he's like, Matt, I am so sorry to tell you this, but we just got told by head office, this premise is shutting down, you're out of, you're out of work. This is Australia at Christmas time. I worked there three weeks. No one's hiring, you know, just before Christmas. I mean, we go on summer break and Christmas break at the same time. So, you know, we're about to take a month off. No one's going to offer you a job, except I found these jobs in the classified called commission-only sales roles. Now, as you can imagine, for a person that was scared of his own shadow, I mean, you should see, I mean, I had funny color lenses, braces, I had incredibly bad acne, which made the whole idea of, you know, confronting people with sales horribly uncomfortable. But the only thing that was more scary was telling my father that I'm out of work and I've got nothing to do. I mean, my dad broke his back 80 hours a week. So I applied for all three commission-only sales roles and I got all three job interviews. Then I got all three job offers and I'm like, well, maybe they see something in me that I don't see in myself. Well, the job I took, which was selling business-to-business telecommunications door-to-door my manager quickly put that to rest. He said, Matt, we just hire everybody. We've got this saying, we throw mud up against the wall and we see what sticks, Mm -hmm. which sounds like a fun saying until you realize that you're the mud. So (laughs) it doesn't really, Patrick, it doesn't really sound like the guy that's going to end up writing a book on introverted sales, right? It doesn't.
0: (laughs) But we all start somewhere. We all start somewhere. So good. I love the journey.
1: Well, I will say that, you know, after that, I got five days product training and not a single second of sales training, like none. And I get thrown on this road called Sydney Road in Melbourne, Australia. It's like a thousand doors on either side. It's pretty much a sink or swim kind of experience. And I went to walk in the first door and I had this realization that, you know, I didn't even know what to say, like no clue. So I took a deep breath and I walked in and luckily, I say luckily, I was politely told to leave because shortly after that, I was sworn at, I was told to get a real job, which was always my favorite. I mean, it was the only job I could get. And door after door, this just kept happening until I made, I actually made my first sale on my 93rd door. So 92 doors of rejection, but I'd made my 93rd door, I'd made $70. And I remember being ecstatic for like 45 seconds. So I had my second realization for the day. I've got to do this again tomorrow and the next day and the next. And I'm like, this is not okay. Now, I think a lot of people listening will will really fall into one of two camps. I mean, it's what the rest of the world does. It's, right, I'm either going to grind it out, hustle through. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm really excited. There are a lot of proud hustlers out there now that are willing to grind it out, but not without a great strategy. Otherwise, it's just, it, for me, my year would have been terrible. But I also wasn't willing to give up, which was what like 18 of my training group did within 24 hours of our first day. There was, the whole group was only 20. But I decided that if my year wasn't going to be horrific, that sales had to be a system. And I went to work learning that system. And I couldn't pick up a Brian Tracy or his Ziglar book. It would have taken me a year to read it, let alone apply it. But I did find YouTube and I typed in sales system. And all these videos came up. And every day I would literally spend eight hours out in the field applying what I learned. Then I'd rush home, spend eight hours practicing the next step in the system, spend 16 hours on the weekend practicing. I'm sure this doesn't sound fun to anyone, but door after day after day, I'd get, I'd get faster, I'd get quicker at closing a deal. You know, as soon it was 78 doors, then it was 36 doors, then it was 21 doors, then it was 18, then it was nine. I got it down to eventually I made a sale on every on every, on average, every three doors. Now, about six weeks in, my manager pulls me aside and he's like, Matt, we're kind of blown away by this. I mean, remember, I I thought I was in trouble because I was the quiet guy that handed my paperwork in downstairs, never really talked to any of the big, boisterous salespeople upstairs, talking about how they closed that deal or how the market was getting harder. And he just looked at me and he goes, we just got our national sales figures, which at that point, we only used to get once a month. And he said, turns out you're the number one salesperson in the company, which just so happened to be the largest sales and marketing company in the Southern Hemisphere. Thousands of salespeople. Now, naturally, he thought, well, if you can sell, clearly you can manage. I don't know why people think that. I mean, i got given a team of 20 to train myself. They all quit within 24 hours. Back to YouTube to learn how to manage. And quickly, I actually became very good at that. And then about a year in, I decided to open up my own telecommunications company, well, my own brokership. And, you know, very quickly we grew and, you know, fast forward just shy of a decade, we've been responsible for, I should say, I've been responsible for five multi-million dollar success stories. And that's what led to me coming to the U.S. And obviously I started talking about what I call the three steps to rapid growth. And before I talked about sales, I talk about my own personal story. And what blew me away is while people found the presentation helpful, they said, I just didn't know as an introvert that I could I could sell. So I kept telling other people to write the book. And people kept saying, no one's going to buy a book on introverted sales. So eventually, after working with a ghostwriter as a client, he and I agreed that we'd work together on the project, which then led to the Introvert's
0: Edge series. Wow. So really interesting story and kind of cool. Thanks for uh, recapping that part of your journey. I want to uh, dig into a couple spots. But in the first one is, is that can you define introversion? Now, I know that, you know, we maybe at a higher level know introvert and understand being an introvert. Uh, you know, I'm I'm known as an extrovert, but I'm also very introverted. Like I really, really enjoy spending time alone and I really enjoy when I don't hang out with people. So I'm kind of in between. I'm, I think it's referred to as an omnivert in that regard. I can go, I'm happy to be in public and I'm really happy when I'm not. So, For you, given all the work you've done, if you were going to explain somebody being an introvert, what would you how would you define it or how would you explain it so they understood it?
1: Yeah, sure. And I actually think it's a really important question because most people don't actually know. And you Hmm. hear things like, oh, I used to be introverted, but no, don't worry, I'm actually an extrovert now. Like it's a good thing to go from introvert to extrovert, or that it's even possible. First thing is. Introverts and extroverts have their own burdens to bear. Some might say extroverts aren't the best listeners; they're not the most empathetic. The difference is that a HR manager will go and send them to education courses to learn how to do that. We we believe that extroverts can just go out and get training to do that. And you know the studies by uh, you know Daniel Goldman definitely highlight that that's possible. Mm-hmm. The problem with Introversion is we believe there's this barrier that we can't cross. So it's really important for introverts to realize there's no downside to being an introvert or upside to being an extrovert. We all have our burdens to bear. It's important to realize that there's skills gaps and that we need to spend the time filling those gaps. Also, our path to success is different, both for an extrovert and an introvert. So you can't go from being introverted to extroverted. You also can't go, it's funny, like during COVID, you know, I spoke at a a big conference uh, a while back and it was all these sales leaders and some of them would say, you know, oh, I used to be introverted, but now I'm extroverted. Other people would say, oh, since COVID, I used to be really extroverted, but now I'm more introverted psychologists have made it really confusing. There's all these articles that are out there and it's just, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. So I like to simplify it. Now, sure, you've got people that are highly sensitive. You've got people that are shy. You've got all these other iterations, but to keep it simple, because if you're a manager and you've got a team of people, you need to know a simple way to qualify and then get them the training that they need. If you're a small business owner, you need to understand quickly so you can work out how to help yourself, and the truth is, I think the easiest way, the simplest way to define it, is just where you draw your energy. For instance, you know, I I have a, a conference that I, I uh, that we founded called Nash, uh, small business, well, Small Business Festival, and Small Business Festival. Jim Cathcart is, I mean, he's an amazing friend of mine. Definitely an extrovert, though, and he was the closing speaker at the event. Now, at the end of this three-day event that he and I were very involved in, I wanted to go home, put on a hoodie, perhaps cry to myself for a minute or two, and then watch Netflix. He wanted to go down Rainy Street because he was so buzzed. I mean, I've never, he's in his seventies. I've never had to ask a 70 year old in my life. If I can (laughs) please go home, like at midnight, I was like, I have had it. So if you draw your energy from being with people, like if you go to a networking event and when the event's done, you're looking to go and do some other people based activity. You're definitely an extrovert. If, you at the end of a networking event now that's not to say you didn't have fun like for me i actually really enjoy networking now which means it doesn't take as much energy from me as it used to because i've learned a system that keeps my anxiety my stress at bay and i don't feel so emotionally connected to every single conversation but like a kid at disneyland at the end of the networking event i'm tired i want to go home i want to have some downtime with my my family or just by myself so if you draw your energy by being by yourself then you're absolutely an introvert now Sure, there's a spectrum, as you said, version is something that people are starting to realize now. But I believe that there are introverts that have learned how to network and sell and speak like me who now would be considered an ambivert. I'm definitely an introvert. I'm exhausted afterwards. I'm even ang- I even have a little mental anxiety later about did I say the right thing, did I do the right thing? and I critique myself and maybe that's got what got me to where I am today because I'm so systematic in my process. And extroverts, Sure, they can learn empathy, they can learn active listening, which again, bring them down the spectrum. But I think the simple way to do it is say I'm on the introverted side or I'm on the extroverted side because that's where I draw my energy. Everything else is a skill set that I can learn and master.
0: Brilliant. I love that because it really simplifies it in a lot of ways. But the other side of this coin is that, and I'm sure you've heard it you know, with all your training that you've uh, provided, is I often, you know, having been a speaker for almost 20 years and thousands of people and coaching and all the things that I've done in my life, I often run up against the individual that goes, I can't do that. I'm just too introverted. I'm an introvert. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't make sense. And it shuts them down. So, you know, I think that in your case, I mean, you're a pretty clear example of being able to work through that side of it if you're inspired to do that, motivated to do that. Do you have, you know, because I know there's going to be listeners that are saying, like, I'm an introvert, and it almost is a shield or it almost becomes an excuse for not doing more or stepping up further or accomplishing more, even though they want to. Uh, you know, on one side of it, they say, I want to, you know, I want, you know, my define my success this way. I have dreams, I have vision, but my introversion, ah, I can't do that. So when somebody gives you that, because I'm sure you've heard some version of that many times, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to somebody who says, no, I'm just too introverted. I can't do that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, our belief systems are really tough thing to crack because, Uh, And one of the the keynotes that I do when I speak at a lot of corporations or small business is I talk about um, the power of story. And my presentation is called Build Your Story Playbook. Mm. And I talk, a lot of times I will talk to a whole bunch of people that have had a rough year and maybe their technology is not where it needed to be and they transformed it now or maybe they've just, you know, COVID happened. And we tell ourselves these stories. Now, the problem with stories is stories actually short-circuit our logical mind Mm. and speak directly to the emotional mind. And if the emotional mind knows that they can't do something or if something is is it possible to overcome? Then it doesn't even matter if logically we know now it's not true. Our emotional mind keeps telling us, we keep telling ourselves this story, which keeps solidifying we can't do it. So, firstly, we have to start deprogramming. So, you know, there's a great app called Think Up, which helps reprogram your mind. Affirmations are really powerful mm. uh, to, to get you out of this. But the truth is that everybody has a reason for why they can't. If you're a rich kid that grew up super wealthy, you could say, well, I just wasn't brought up tough enough to really be able to compete with everyone else. Sure. If you grew up poor, it's like, oh, well, I haven't been given the mm-hmm. opportunities that those rich kids have. If you grew up in a bad neighborhood, I mean, I, like, I can tell you, and this is a story I don't tell on podcasts often, I had 26 stitches across the side of my face because I got hit in the head with a glass. This was when I was 21, mm-hmm. right? So I could say, oh, that's a reason. You know, I used to be really good at sales, But then I got hit in the head with the glass. And, you know, it was a whole period of time and five years worth of really painful plastic surgery to get this part back to normal. And during that time, I looked like a bikey that had just left the bar after a bar fight, right? So clearly there's a reason for why I couldn't be successful. Instead, I made the decision that this wasn't going to affect my life. Now, I did have to get better at sales because I couldn't just go through life as that kid that people would trust because he looks like, you know, the introverted quiet kid next door, but he's out selling, let's just buy off him. Instead, I had to look like the guy that nobody should feel safe trusting. And instead, I had to find a different way to build rapport, which is really where I learned the power of story, because story actually activates the reticular activating system of your brain, which actually creates artificial rapport that we can then build into deeper rapport, which introverts are obviously great at. So the thing is that I I tell people all the time, be careful of the stories that you tell it yourself, because... Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, if you keep telling them, you you'll forget the fact that it may not be true. Like I speak at big corporations and you get these new people that are hiding behind email, kind of responding to clients because they're scared to pick up the phone. And in their mind, they're like, Well, I don't have the 20 years of experience. And I'm like, Well, hang on a second, go learn, just tell a story. It'll sound like you've got 30. Oh, but I don't have any stories yet. What are you talking about? You work for Intel. How do you mean you don't have any stories? You've got Intel's got years or decades of you know, stories and past experiences, go inherit someone else's story. Change, I worked with someone, that we worked with someone, no, one's, customer's not going to know the dif- difference. And now you're going to sound like you've been there for 20 years. I actually do it from stage. I spoke at a big tech event, billion dollar company. And I started telling a story like I worked for the company. And at the end, I said, who here thinks I've worked for this company for over a decade to be able to tell a story complete with industry acronyms in such a, a, a structured manner? And everyone almost put up their hands, and I'm like, "No, I, I got this gig about six weeks ago. I wrote the story last week after interviewing. Really, more of an interrogation because most people think they tell great stories. They tell horrible stories. They're so one-dimensional, and they're all about what you what they did as opposed to the customer and and the outcome that they got them. And you know, at the end, I said, you know, I wrote the story last week. I remembered it yesterday, which only took a couple of hours, and now." look at me. Everyone thinks that I'm a person that's been here for 10 years. So if I can do it, what's your excuse? Mm-hmm. So the truth is, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that, um, every moment of every day, we decide who we are and what we believe in. We get a second chance every second. Now that's not to say you change your religious faith every second but you get to decide whether or not you're going to be an effect of these problems or a cause of these problems. Now, in truth, let's say you've got crippling anxiety and you're super shy and you're very introverted and therefore it depletes a lot of your energy. Well, you can learn coping strategies. You can learn systems. You know, I worked with a client who you know, was just an introverted service provider, wanted to create a business that revolved around her, her family, and her life, not the other way around. Wanted to earn a good six-figure income. And she was like, I'm not going to sell over the phone. And I said, well, the trouble is you can drive people from website to webinar to sale, but until you validate things, you don't know whether it's working. So you're going to have to work much harder than you need to. So let's learn the process of selling and then once you've sold to a few people and you know what stories work and what you know uh, uh, highlight features work and benefits work, then you can build that into a webinar. Well, now she's actually learned to do it. She thinks it's one of her superpowers. She loves it, and because of that, she never wants to go to the webinar because she wants to have that contact with people. She feels like it makes her better. Now Ryan Dice will say this. Ryan Dice, the person that you see that runs the Traffic and Conversion Summit, he you know he's probably one of the most He's probably one of the biggest brands teaching people how to make money on the internet. on the internet. And I asked him the question on my Introverts Edge podcast, can we really just not speak to anyone these days? And he said, yeah, absolutely, eventually, but not straight away. He said, you know, when he launched his product, Digital Marketer HQ, he said, you know, originally I launched it from the traffic and conversion stage. And he said, after that, I said that I would be standing at the stand and people could come and talk to me. Now, this is a guy that doesn't—he's not scared of speaking from stage. He's scared of being trampled afterwards, so he demands a back entrance and ent- you know, exit and entrance. You know, when he spoke from my stage, you know, we had to make sure that we had a, a place for him to speak, that he could get enter and exit from the rear. But he said, I walked over and I stood at that stand. It was terrifying for me. And for three days, I answered people's questions. He said it was the worst three days of my life. But at the end of that, I knew exactly what stories to tell, exactly what things. Mm-hmm set people alight, exactly what not to say. We built that into sales copy. We built it into webinars. I gave scripts to sales team members. I never never spoke to anyone about it ever again. He said, but that three days was necessary or it would have cost me a lot of money. And for new business owners, a lot of stress, anxiety, and burning out their savings before they realize what actually works.
0: You know, it's interesting, you know, you kind of hit on it with all of this which is we talk about excuses and as coaches we know one of the questions that we often ask is what is the story you're telling yourself so precede the question or precede your answer or your your excuse with the story I'm telling myself is x and then start to decide what you're going to work through now is your experience similar to mine where a lot of people because we can look at it and say, well, what do we want? You know, what do we need to break through? What's our excuse? But I often find people who aren't really clear on the outcome that they're trying to achieve. they as a matter of fact, it's vague at best. And is that a really integral part from your perspective, based on your experience, you know, whether introvert, extrovert, doesn't matter. Let's just talk sales. Let's just talk about, you know, moving forward against goals. Do you find that even some of your, the, the sales training you're doing, you got a sales guy there and he's even vague in terms of, or they are vague, he or she are vague in terms of what their outcomes are. How much of that do you bump up against in, in, in the context of what you coach and teach and write about? Uh, how important is it?
1: Yeah, it's super important, is the answer. I mean, one of the things that I'll say is so, you know, one of the one of my favorite quotes is a a Henry Ford quote, you know, whether you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. So for me, I always work on the basis of I think I can. You know, for me, I always say, you know, everything works out for me. Right. So when something goes wrong, I say everything works out for me. There must be a reason, right? Now you could say, well, hang on a second, you're not preparing for things to go wrong. And I'm like, no, if I'm gonna run a marathon. I'm going to be more likely to finish because I'm more likely to train if I think that I can, you know, finish, right? So if you don't think you can get to the end, why would you even try? And that's what I find happens a lot with introverts and sales and things like that. So Mm -hmm. there are two types of answers to this question. The first thing is a lot of people feel like they're moving forward by consuming lots of information. So they'll burn through a ton of podcasts, they'll read a ton of books. And I, you know, for me, that's what I call busy procrastination, Mm -hmm. right? Because what they're doing is they don't want to take the physical actions or they don't know that they should or they don't feel ready that they should but either way what happens is they go to the next book and the next book and the next book you know the number of people that reach out to me and they'll say matt your book the introvert's edge it changed my life and i'm like oh amazing that's that's really great to hear tell me about that you know how's your sales system look Oh, I don't really. Ha- I haven't really structured a system like you've highlighted. I'm like, okay, did you go through the free video implementation training in the back? Did it help you build a system? Oh, I haven't done that yet. Oh, okay, because implementation is the scary word, right? Mm-hmm. All right? Tell me what story you're telling with clients now. Oh, I haven't really written a story like what you've highlighted. I mean, help me out a little bit here. How exactly has it changed your life? Well, just knowing I can sell has transformed my life. And I'm like, knowing you can doesn't get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Knowing the system. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't need to know my system. I mean, Jeb Blunt is an introvert. As I said, Zig Ziglar is an introvert. Mm -hmm. Mark Hunter is an introvert. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can go through the list. If you look at the global gurus list, there is a whole, like the top 30 sales professionals in the world of which I think I'm currently number three, but there's at least 10 introverts on that list you can learn from. They just haven't stamped the word introvert on their book like I have. But the truth is that what happens is people go, okay, I'm going to learn how to sell as an introvert. Oh, I don't think I know enough yet. I don't think I know enough yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I only knew how to put eight hours worth of practice in place the next day, right? I I fumbled forward throughout it. Now, people say, oh, hang on a second. I'm just not sure I'm going to be comfortable with that kind of rejection. Well, okay. Think about it like an experiment. So for me, the reason why I love the idea of sales process is when you think it's an external system, you start to tinker with your you know your logical mind. You start to say, okay, I'll change this. By the way, don't change more than one thing at once. So once you've got the basic system, change one thing at a time. Sales mm. is like a science to me. If you change more than one thing, you don't know what's going to be blowing up in your face, right? So one thing at a time, but by seeing it as an external process, you'll feel more comfortable. What generally happens though, is people say, oh, I don't know enough and they don't take action. So because of that, they never get anywhere. Then they'll say, oh no, let me read a few sales books and I'll try and piece together what I think the best system for me is. The problem with that is sales isn't like mixed martial arts and the person that's best placed to pick the system structure for you is the person that wrote the book. They've got more experience, right? So whether it's my book or anyone else's book on sales, networking, public speaking, leadership, whatever, pick your so-called extroverted arena. I say so-called because I think introverts are best at most of them. Once you've done that, pick one system and focus on learning it. The next thing is most people don't dedicate the time. So yes, okay, you say we don't know the outcome, but they also don't time block out time to actually transform. So a lot of people will say, oh yeah, man, it was easy for you. I mean, you had you, I mean, you were 18 at the time. You know, you had eight hours to practice, but I've got kids, I've got a family, there's just no time to do it. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. You're spending 40 hours a week, maybe 60 hours a week, hustling to find clients, trying to convince these prospects to to even take you seriously, fighting on price, chasing up proposals. Dedicate 20% of that time. But the problem is people think that if they're taking action, they're moving forward. I, getting somebody to stay still and learn a system and practice is almost all meant for these people that want that instant gratification of moving forward. That being said, in truth, if I, you don't need to get... I mean, I went from terrible at sales to being the number one in the company in six weeks by dedicating that amount of time. If you break the time over six months and only do half as much as I did, you'll still be great compared to the average person going and speaking to the client. So all of that goes down to what I call busy procrastination. You're not actually doing the work, but you're 100% right, Patrick. It also comes to, oh, I don't actually know the outcome that I'm after. And a lot of people say, well, I need, like, a lot of people will read my book on, on selling and they think their problem is they don't know how to sell it to a client, but actually their problem is that they're seen as a commodity. So the problem is that there's all these arguments about price. So they go to the work doing all this proposal work and the person just looks for the cheapest price Mm. or they'll speak to 10 people. When somebody sits down with the rapid growth guy, the China success coach, the authority architect, they see them as a commodity. They see them as in a box of their own. They don't see them as having competition, right? So the biggest thing is there's actually a lot of legwork you can remove From, or if you call the heavy lifting, you can remove before the sales process. So, you're right. A lot of people will say, Well, I want to learn how to sell. And a lot of times, sales isn't the answer, or at least a lot can be fixed before you even get to the sale, which means you don't actually even have to be that good a salesperson or business owner that sells. Because if you think you're not selling, you're wrong to get the deal closed. So, a lot of times, the problem is wrong. But also, you're 100% right. A lot of people look at even if we took sales in isolation and said, do they know how to do that? They don't. They look for the one tactic. That's what we all do these days. We look for the one silver bullet, the one tactic that's going to transform our sales. And truthfully, for introverts, that's not your answer. That's going to lead you to think, feeling inauthentic and uncomfortable. And even for extroverts, it's not something that's going to really tip the balance to being more successful.
0: You know, this is a, an, an important conversation and it's one that I've had, you know, many, many times over the years. Of course, we're working with real estate investors and teaching and training real estate investors, the system, the process, That you know the real estate investment network has been doing that for 29 years. Now, it's interesting, you know, back to what you just said. And, and you know, I often say to, you know, I, I like busy procrastination or being in motion, not in action. You know, there's really fundamental differences there and understanding people will go to YouTube They'll go to the books, as you say, they'll take on copious amounts of information and do nothing with it. And I often will use the analogy that, you know, you can learn how to swim on YouTube. You could learn how to swim reading a book, but you don't really learn to swim until you jump in the pool. Now, it's usually a good idea to jump in the shallow end of the pool if you're just learning how to swim and then test go forward, test, try some different things, make sure that you actually embrace it. And on your sales system, your sales process that even that you embraced in that six weeks before you became a top sales guy for that particular company, you were going in learning, testing, learning, testing, and you were getting feedback, feedback directly. Of course, results you were having conversations because you were a door-to-door sales guy or you know, in terms of business, but you were actually testing, you were taking action, you were learning, you're testing, you're taking action. So you didn't jump into the... necessarily the deep end of the pool, actually you absorbed it over a period of time. I think it's such an important distinction to make for people so that they don't get into the busy procrastination, as you just talked about. It's it's a huge, I think for many, it would be a, a huge epiphany for them to reflect on the steps that they're taking. Now, we run into it all the time. Now, I'm going to take this conversation in a different direction, if you don't mind. And that is, you know, we are seeing what's happened, what COVID drove was a whole new speed of technology embracing technology you know i joke that you know back in march of 2020 you know nobody knew how, you know many didn't know how to spell zoom let alone use it i mean as a company we were we had been using zoom for a number of years we've got an international team so we literally you know we locked down i think it was on the 15th of march 2020 and literally on the 17th of march we held our first webinar with several hundred people and and because we had already braced technology we see the future so Here's what I'm curious about you, you being the sales guy, you being the book guy. Technology drives is is decreasing the value of education. In other words, there's lots of free education out there. You've got a system, you've got a process, but everybody's got a system, everybody's got a process, according to YouTube, many books out there. So what's happening is technology is deflationary on that space called education, information, You know, newspapers used to buy them. Now you can get everything online for free. So in how you see the future, introvert, extrovert aside, how you see the future given your sales training, your processes, your systems, how important it is, is it for you as a business owner and how important is it for your clients to understand the impact of technology on their businesses? Like you say, totally random off the you know way over here uh, in terms of our conversation, but I'm interested given what you do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, technology is everything these days. And mm. let me level with you. So yes, I've built five multimillion dollar businesses, however the truth is these were all bricks and mortar telemarketing direct sales I mean Mm -hmm. when I moved to the US I didn't even know how to change the word that to the word they on a website and I actually was kind of proud about that embarrassingly enough but that's because a large amount of my self my identity was connected to the fact that I was this introvert that learned how to sell and that You know, the the fact that, you know, these there were these people that were making money online. And, you know, I I have to admit, like I looked at social media and went, people, you want me to spend how much every month for these magical people to appear? I'm almost embarrassed to say this stuff now, right? Because, you know, one of the things that I realized when I moved to the US is, oh my gosh, if I want to ever have a business that I can pick up and take back to Australia, like what if my family gets sick? I need to embrace technology, I need to have Mm -hmm. an online business. So, I mean, I was the guy that couldn't change the word that to the word they on a website. And I just went, you know what? The thing that I realized is I need to understand it because there are a lot of people out there that do not know what they're doing. They're saying, you know, follow me, spend all this money on social media, on PR, on website development, on SEO. And they're saying follow you, but they don't actually, they're not getting leads the same way themselves. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll say, oh yeah, you use SEO, but then they're spamming you on LinkedIn. Or they'll say, oh, I'll show you how to use social content on LinkedIn, but then they're paying for Facebook ads. And I mean, you see people all the time now doing that stuff. Now, sure, they may be getting lead flow. Like we can't go, oh, They're not doing it that way. They may be using this as a supplement. But the truth is that if you don't start to embrace technology in your business, you're actually making it harder for yourself. Now, here's what I did realize, though. And I know I keep talking back to commodity. And we can spend some time talking about how to differentiate yourself in a minute. But the thing I want you to understand is the reason why most people think that networking doesn't work is because they're either doing transactional networking, which mm-hmm. means they're walking up to people going, do you want to buy from me? No, what about you? What about you? What about you? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that feels horrible for any introvert, but most extroverts don't even like that. No. So they do what's called aimless networking, where they have that shallow conversation. Somebody asks them what they do. They kind not of even put it down, right? And then they all awkwardly find an excuse to leave each other. They hand each other business cards. They walk out awkwardly knowing these people that they're never going to contact, right? And that's why people say networking doesn't work. Well, truth is it does work. You're just doing it wrong. And there's a strategic way to do it. But what I learned learned is that the same thing that goes wrong in a networking room i.e if you can't articulate the value of what you provide in your difference when someone's politely listening for three to four minutes what chance do you have when people give you fractions of a second online mm-hmm. so the truth is that if you can be the clearest you don't have to be the loudest so what I found is everybody that's working online, the reason why they're telling you to blog post every day, podcast every day, you know, post on social media every 10 seconds, which leads you to taking photos of your donut because you've just ran out of things to say, is because They're working under the assumption that most people have this vanilla brand that is commoditized like crazy. And because of that, it's just about being the loudest, which, by the way, in face-to-face world, it just means you've got to go to more networking events, right? Eventually, you Mm -hmm. can succeed. You just have to hit enough people over the head with your message often enough. But I don't like that. So for me, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be the clearest and then I don't have to be the loudest. And then you can learn te- how to leverage technology, even automation, which everyone tells you you shouldn't use. Well, truthfully, if you're clearer, you don't have to work so hard. You can leverage the power of automation to drive people from social media to website, website to email, email to phone call, or podcast to website, website to email, email to phone call, or speaking event. And the, the world, you know, it just continues on. Sure. So, yes, technology is absolutely essential. And the truth is, it's getting more and more impossible to com- compete. If you don't jump into that world, for instance, you know, I'm, yes, I offer, you know, one-on-one coaching. I mean, I'm booked out months and months in advance. I only work with people on short-term engagements, but my price is such, and it can only be that way Because I have an online program as well. And if I didn't have a consistent income, I would be like, oh, you know what? I don't want to give up that client. Oh, wait, no, I, you know, I'll negotiate with that client. Oh, wait, I don't have a consistent income and I've got no client lined up next month. So it gives me that comfort of knowing that I've got diversified incomes and that I can help people at every price point. So I've leveraged technology to make myself more competitive. Also, when I speak from stage, you've got all these speakers that speak from stage and they're on a podium and they're getting paid to speak. Now, I understand that getting paid to speak is really is really good, but how do you compete with someone like me that also coaches and also has an online program? Because when I speak, while I never sell from stage, I will never do that because otherwise no one's going to pay you to speak. I'll tell people, in, in fact, even not to buy it from me. What I find is all these people then start to chase me because they want to download the first chapter of my book, or they want that template, or they want that thing, or they fall in love with my content and they find their way to me. Because I have a diversified income stream, when I speak from stage, you know, I used to speak for free to get clients. And then every time I did, I used to make five figures worth of clients. Now I get paid over five figures to speak. And every time I do, I still make over five figures worth of clients. But the income that I make from speaking, it, to me, that's just marketing revenue, right? Because I don't need it. So because of that, I can double down on my advertising and everything that I do. Now, I don't spend money on Facebook ads, but when I say advertising, new website, new podcast, new all the things that help people. For me, I put a ton of content out there to help introverts realize they can succeed. And without that speaking revenue, I wouldn't be able to do that as much. But again, without technology, I wouldn't be able to leverage that. So the thing that I will tell you is the world of technology is super complicated. When you first start, because you don't know where to start. Well, the answer is if you don't know, if you're a small business owner and you don't know how to control your own website you're basically not in charge of your own destiny. And a couple of YouTube videos, and I can tell you, I put it off. I even had a website designer in my last business that sat me down and tried to show me. And I was so closed-minded. I was like, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't need to do that. But I ended up emailing him about small changes and I'd pay him like $50 to $100 every time I needed these changes, sometimes driving all the way to his office to get him to make a change. My gosh, how easy it is to actually have control of your own website. So learn that first. Now, for those people that are in sales, things like Zoom, people are like, oh, yeah, no, I prefer to meet with people in person. Well, there are two things that happen. One is that when you change paradigms or change technologies, if you like, the process shifts. For instance, when you're having a meeting, You might think that extroverts have an advantage because they can strike up a conversation. When you're on Zoom, they have a disadvantage because people want to get straight to business. They've got a 30-minute slot and they expect it to happen. So the process transforms. Secondly, your ability to tell stories that educate and inspire because people are a lot more time poor these days. They've got distractions. Their their Zoom's on, but their emails and their chats are happening in the background. So the stories engage. So learning how to leverage technology and learning how to create a system for having a real-world dialogue the conversation or feel like somebody still has interaction with you in a digital world is hugely important and the truth is that more and more it's going to be unlikely that the people that don't adapt will survive so when you say is it important it's actually a survival question it's not really a profitability question
0: mm-hmm. so I'm gonna once again go down a different path. Now you're a young man. I don't know. Are you over thirty now, or are you still under thirty? I know that you'd accomplished I, a lot before you hit thirty. I you say
1: that. I think it's because I you are. I'm it's, actually it's, thirty-seven. I'm about to turn thirty-eight. But, <laughs> oh, thirty-eight.
0: You know, one of the things about
1: getting plastic surgery for the scars. Okay, so okay, on my face, maybe so, oh, okay, so interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, this is the first time we've met. So old bio. So the it's interesting, and I want to just comment on your uh, facial scar. I had a facial injury many years ago, and it is one of the. It was one of the biggest challenges I had to get over because to me, and it was pointed out to me, uh, by my wife actually. And, uh, you know, Stephanie, we're, we're doing whatever we were doing. And I was meeting somebody and, and, and she said, what I've noticed about as you met people tonight, she says, do you realize that when you shake their hand, you look them in the eye, then you look away really quickly and i didn't realize i was doing that and so we dug into it a little bit and she goes why do you think you do that and i said because of the scar on my face i real and it was a still relatively fresh scar but we were probably almost a year in and the realization was that Holy cow! I think people are looking at my scar, and and you know because it's on your face, and it's, it was interesting that I looked away, which of course is the last thing you want to do when you're meeting somebody, and the re, then the next realization was that no, nobody was even really noticing the scar on my face, which was interesting. Now it sounds like your scar was significantly different than mine and on more severe, but it is a really big deal for those people who have had that happen to them. Man, oh man, well you got a scar on your face it's like, it was the worst. And, uh, I mean, that was many years ago that, that, that showed up for me, but I I just wanted to shine a light on it because it is an interesting phenomena when you've got that scar.
1: Absolutely, and so you have to understand that we. Well, well, you definitely understand, but for most people listening, they they have to understand that it is front of mind all the time, all the time, and yep. it really creates an identity crisis for you because even yep. if you think you, 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 I'll give an example. There's a story I talk about in my first book about when I talk about my acne and and things like that, and I say there was this one time I was playing basketball. It was a really difficult thing for me to add to the book, but there was a time that I, you know, I a basketball hit me in the face. And it popped one of my pimples and everybody in the class, like everyone playing basketball sure. saw it and it was there. And it was something you just couldn't get away from, right? Yeah. Like that really forms part of your identity and that yeah. discomfort. Yeah. Well, when, you know, the acne, thanks to the power of Araccutane and things like that, that I took way too late, you know, actually, you know, started to subside, thank goodness. But it was around the time that I started doing that, about a year about a year not even, about six months after that I got this, and I was like, oh, my gosh, now I've got to deal with something else. Yeah. And you're 100% right. The way people see scars is for the first 12 months, they can't touch it much, right? Yeah. They've got to let it sit, work out. And I had this pocket thing. And you know, I had a, I mean, the glass missed my eye by like two millimeters. So I mm. almost was blind. Mm. Thank goodness. I don't know how I would have dealt with that. Mm. I would have found a way though, in truth, right? Again, don't define yourself by your stories. There are people without legs, aren't without arms that are blind, that are still doing amazing things. You find your path to success. Every disadvantage gives you a natural advantage. I say all the time, you know, our our um our trauma in life sends the success of our future, right? Mm. Our, you know, you've really got to understand mm. that anybody that's had it easy, generally can't, uh, will find it harder to achieve because they're not pushed yeah. to do things outside the box. And that out-of-box thinking, gosh, it's an advantage. But you're right, the scar here, it was about a year before I could even get surgery to get the pocket removed. Mm-hmm. But you'll find now, and it's funny, I you know, when I started doing video interviews, and you know when you're sitting two chairs, like TV interviews and things like that, the the difference between how comfortable I was being interviewed when I was standing this way mm. versus when I was standing this 100%. way because I could feel that the light was shining on it. And I remember I was in one video interview once and I said, oh would you mind if I um, um, would you mind if I pick the seat that we sit in? Because I, you know, I've got a scar on my face and I just don't like that being in front of camera. And the response I got back was, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Which side is your, of your face is the scar on? And I'm like, well, if she's asking me that question, she can't see it. Why don't I still see it as an
0: issue? 100%. So now it's
1: actually funny. I actually lean into the problem, yeah. and I do most of my interviews facing this way mm. because, firstly, the story helps people, and I don't bring it up in a lot of interviews. But when I do, like, go back and look at a bunch of my interviews, you'll find I'm standing this way, and it's because I can still see it. I can see it clear as day, yeah. but it's like a Where's Waldo or a Where's Wally if you're in Australia. 100 puzzle for everybody else
0: i'm exactly the same way and it's interesting i've had uh people that i've you know known for 10 years now who said you've got a scar in your nose i go yeah i lost half my nose and they go i just noticed now so it's interesting to me it's like you know big light and it's but it is funny but i had a couple of shifts that were driven by one uh somebody who i respect a lot who said to me dude just a character scar you know, that's that that's a story and it's a part of your life. And then the, another one was really woke me up was this lady who I respected a lot. And uh, she shared with me that she was so pissed off at her husband because he had, believe it or not, he had this gap in his teeth and in, in his front teeth. And he went and got it fixed and he didn't talk to her. He goes, she goes, I cannot believe he did that. It is just I loved it as such a statement of who he is. And to her, it was like a character scar and he went and got it fixed. It pissed her off. So it was just an interesting view of the world. It helped me shift my own view around that. So anyways, we don't need to spend any other time on it. But for those of you who might happen to have a, a scar or something facial, I get it. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Matthew gets it. So <laughs> just know that it's pretty normal. Uh, so I want to well, go back. I will
1: say just yes. quickly, I cannot tell like your nose, I cannot tell like the whole time you were telling me that story. I was <laughs> looking analyzing for your nose, high definition. I yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> it, it is funny. But so You know, when you look at you now, 38 years old, thank you for uh, putting in that correction. But, you know, you're still a young man. You, you, You know, you've had an interesting journey to get to where you are today to achieve and accomplish what you've achieved let's go back, you know, as a kid growing up, brother, sister, siblings, like, how did you morph? The question I always ask, is it nature? Is it nurture? How did you come to this entrepreneurial spirit? Uh, Was your parents entrepreneurial? Like, how did it show up for you that you went on this journey as a kid growing up? Were you the first kid to put the, you know, lemonade stand up or sell newspapers? How was your journey brought together, uh, Matthew?
1: Absolutely. So, um, there's a couple of answers to that. So I grew up in a very blue-collar family to a certain point, to a certain age, and then they changed. So it was actually a really great family to grow up in. So firstly, you know, I have you know my, my 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 parents are still married. They're very supportive of each other and in each other's growth, and they have very much a growth mindset. And I think that was a huge advantage. I think for people mm-hmm. that are parents at home, you know, even if your kids fail, even if you fail the benefit of saying we are going in this direction storm the torpedoes is what my father used to say. storm the torpedoes we are heading in this direction Mm -hmm. that is hugely powerful for a kid to hear because that abundance mindset i mean i know that my parents spent money on things that didn't work their first property that they invested in they barely made any money off they were lucky to make money because you know and and they it was they had a really tough couple of years paying for it and then they barely made any money off it at the end right so tough but that didn't stop them from trying to do it again Mm -hmm. right so there were all these things that my parents did that i got to witness now i will say that you know, I look at the iterative process of generation. So if you think about it, my grandfather on my mother's side, she had sheep for a living, right? That's And then he moved into a factory at the Ford Motor Company over time. And my nan, she was a seamstress, right? So, you know, very blue collar. And on the other side, you know, there was another person working at Ford, and then the other person was a manager asset in the kitchen at Ford, right? So very, very blue collar. My mother was the first person, well, she, I mean, she just had amazing grades, but, you know, her principal said to her dad, she could really be anything. She could be a doctor. She could be a lawyer. And his response was, no child of mine will be, you know, do one of those careers. She's going to go to secretarial school where she can get a safe job at the end, mm-hmm. Right. So that was the kind of mindset. My dad was the first one to get a degree, but you know, he got a degree in chemistry, which then he ended up working at a university. But what happened, and I got to watch this, is my mom and dad supported each other the whole way through. So, you know, my father extra qualifications pushing to get better jobs. My mother, when she she got a neck injury, actually, and she couldn't work as a, as a secretary anymore. My dad supported while she went back to business school and then she worked at a bank and then she opened up her own business coaching business. And you know i remember growing up listening to things like robert kiyosaki's you know rich dad poor dad and you know michael gerber's e myth and and hearing about those conversations so yes i was definitely benefited by that and i will say that the world never worked for me right with my reading issues with my acne issues with my self confidence issues with you know getting hit with the glass all of those sorts of things the world never really worked for me things were always tougher and because of that my family really fostered this confidence in myself, even though I was very, um, I, I didn't have a lot of confidence, but belief in the fact that I could always find a way out. Right, my parents were unrelenting. Like my, my mother got told I was just an you know a dyslexic that didn't try, and she kept looking until she found this thing called Erlen syndrome, which basically just means I'm sensitive to the color yellow in the spectrum of white on a paper, which is why the words always look different to me. The glasses fix that. But because I learned young that there was always a solution for things, I think that mental programming benefited me throughout life. Now, you know, when you look at my entrepreneurial journey, you know, I remember that I wanted a computer when I was young. You know, I was one of those quiet nerdy kids that. You know, just wanted to play on computers and play computer games and stuff like that. And my dad said you know, he was worried about how much time that I spent inside, so he always pushed me to go play out basketball and things like that, which mm-hmm. pushed me to make friends. But then when I wanted a computer, he, he said, you figure out a way to pay for it. And mm-hmm. I was too young to get a job in Australia, so what I did is I started finding out how much it cost, and I started noticing it was much cheaper at one place than it was at another And so I literally started saying, you know, if I can get you that cheaper price, will you give me 50% of the money? Because they were saying, I can't even buy it for that price. And literally through that exchange of parts, within six, I think it was like six to eight weeks, maybe a little bit longer, I I got my own computer, right? Completely from the money that people say. So I was always looking for ways that I could bend the world in my favor. And I think that's the important thing I learned from my family that you have to reach and you have to try. But then also if you do what everyone else is doing, the chances are you will fail. You have to find your own path to success mm-hmm. and learn how to bend the world to your disadvantages and your advantages. And I think that has really led to everything that's allowed me to succeed in the future.
0: You know, I, you make an interesting point. And just parents, you know, they don't sometimes know what they do to, you know, steer kids journey. I think as, uh, as a parent, myself and now grandfather, you know, I see that in reflection. You know, I I, I look at, I've been an entrepreneur, you know, my entrepreneurial journey started in 1980. but it really started even far before that and it came I believe neither my parents were entrepreneurs they both had jobs one of the things as far back as I could ever remember saying to my mom or my dad uh, primarily my dad but either of them I want this whatever that this might be you know it was an, an, an extra toy or it was an extra something that I wanted that I coveted and you know four kids very lower income family wrong side of the tracks but my dad was always great. So was my mom. And they would say, I'll tell you what, you come up with half the money and I'll, I'll come up with the other half. Well, when you're eight years old, 10 years old, you know, even 12 years old, you're going, oh shit, you know, I can't get a job. What do I do? Well, you know, and I lived in, you know, Canada, of course, Alberta, uh, province you know, province of Alberta, city of Edmonton, shoveling snow was the thing, right? So I was shoveling snow and doing what I had to do to you know, raise the money to come up with half of whatever I was going to buy. But I think that was really actually a a point because I don't ever remember not wanting to be a business owner. Like I wanted my own business. And I think that's what drove it was the fact that I could make as much money as I wanted to make shoveling snow. All I had to do was put in the time and the energy. Now that's a different story and a different journey where that took me in terms of my (laughs) entrepreneurial spirit, uh, maybe my workaholism. I don't know. But anyways, the point is this, is that you know, as parents and we see, you know, the impact we can have on our kids and sometimes they're just really simple, simple things. Now, as you grew as an entrepreneur, you started taking action. You know, I'm a big believer in, you know, you can't create standing still. You know, you actually, it goes back to, you know, if you're going to swim, jump in the pool and you learn to swim. There is going to, you know, be, things that you just have to do. You're not going to be able to figure it all out before you take action. That's where many people get stuck. I don't want to fail. So they think they have this bulletproof plan before they take action. I love plans. I think it's a great idea. But at some point, you have to move forward. You know, you have to take that chance. Tell me in terms of your view of failure, Matthew. Now, I know that Lots of people think it's always going to be catastrophic. They're always worried about a catastrophic failure. And while I agree with, you know, that's the last thing any of us want, failures are all the it's the it's the old case of fail forward. What's your kind of philosophy or view of that particular conversation about failure?
1: If you find a single high achiever that hasn't failed more than every underachiever, I would be blown away. Yeah. That that's just that's just the truth. I mean, I have lost more money. Than most people that have you know have uh, had the success um, that oh, sorry that have less success than I have. The truth is that the ability to succeed is an ability to take into account the fact that you may fail and bounce back from that. Mm. And I will say that you know I've made I've I've invested in things that. Not that I actually, you know, I invested in some properties in, in Australia and I, I sold them too soon. I lost money. I should have kept them a little bit mm, longer and I sure. learned from that. Now, mm. yeah, I can say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. You know, I can also say that I, we actually have a conversation with my sister just recently because I spent all this time trying to convince her to buy Bitcoin because she was an investor at that time and I wasn't. Mm. And I'd spent all this time trying to convince her she didn't have the money available at that time to buy it. But I didn't buy it. Mm. Why didn't I buy it? Right. So there are mistakes that I've made that Mm. are just simple things, you know. And you know, a lot of times it's mindset. Like you know, for me, I wasn't an investor. I made my money out of business. Well, why can't I do both? Well, that was a decision that I made when I was young, Mm -hmm. and I had to relook at that decision. Now, have I hired staff members? You know, it's funny when you let go a staff member, they're always upset with you because you let them go. I'm like, no employer ever hires someone with the hopes of letting them go. Right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you want to grow, you want great staff, you want things to go well. But when you let a staff member go, a lot of times it's because of lack of performance. Now, do you not hire staff members because you're worried that they're going to let you down? No, you have to hire them and Mm. you hope they don't. You put every effort into making sure. Like when you hire them and don't support them, yes, it's your fault. And I've done that and learned from it. And then I make a different effort to train them differently. But the way that I learn is by trying to do things based on what I know and they either work or they don't. Now, does that mean I don't consume books, that I don't listen to content? You know, when I came to the US, I literally sat down and synthesized everything I could find about online before I built my own strategy because what I realized, and it was really interesting, you'd have blog posts written by some pretty high-level people that contradicted each other because one blog post, and I'd reach out to these people and become friends with them, but I can tell you that they're like, oh, that one I get more traffic with. So I can't take it down, but this is the one you should pay more attention to, which is the one that doesn't have as much traffic. Mm. So I find that a lot of people are trying to piece together a lot of systems and a lot of ideas that kind of overlap, that some conflict, and it gets overwhelming. So what do they do? Well, that's why I don't think that buying an online program is disappearing, right? Because people realize very quickly that their time is the valuable thing, and they'll gravitate to the paid programs, the paid coaching. But you have to work out what things you don't know to be able to do that first. And that, a lot of times, it's the, you, you've got to apply and you lose time, you lose money, and you've got to be okay with that. The thing that you've, I, in my mind, is that... I take into account that everything is going to work out. And that doesn't mean everything I'm going to do is going to work. It means everything's going to work out in the long run. Yeah. Now, if you're gambling, and I actually have this article on my website, I just wrote this blog post a while back called, Do You Have a Small Business or a Gambling Addiction? And the reason for that is because, and it's quite an extensive article, but it talks about the fact that there is this line entrepreneurship, small businesses, become cool now. So people jump into these ideas that are half-baked. They haven't really thought them through. They're not even that passionate about them. It's just, I'm going to make money and have this life where I don't have to work that hard. But then they don't even have a strategy for how they're going to exceed. They haven't even Hmm. spoken to someone to validate that it's it's a good idea. Now, that to me is a gambling addiction, right? Because you spend more time and more money and more of your family's life savings on that, and it's going to fail. Now, the first time you do it, if you didn't know you were supposed to, it's not your fault but learn from that here's what I've decided when you learn something for the first time the very first thing that you think is oh my gosh I've destroyed my past right I could have made more money I, I could have not made that lost all that money I've wasted all this time and we naturally start to resent all the bad decisions we've made you cannot hold yourself accountable for any of the things that you just learned for the mistakes of the past what you can do is hold yourself accountable moving forward. And as long as you do that, you're learning. Now, if you do not do your research and you jump into things with both feet and you don't consume any information and then you discover something later, the first thing you've learned is that you should have read more before you take action. Blame yourself for that, not the mistakes you made. Mm. Then once you've learned that and you take action, you do all this research, you'll learn to better that. And then you'll learn From that, But the truth is that we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? The people that have written the books, the people that have put out the programs. You'll buy a bad program. I promise you will. You'll make a bad investment. I promise you, you will. The problem is that what happens is we then take that as a judgment on our ability to be able to do things and we stop. Instead, we're supposed to say, no, I made that mistake. Let's do an incident report about what happened. Now, some people just go, I made a mistake. I'll try better next time. I've got to get my fourth failure. Maybe the fifth one will be right. No, learn from it. Work out what went wrong. Once you've worked out what went wrong, read a book to figure out how to stop it from happening again or do some additional training or hire a resource source further and sooner into the whatever trajectory you're doing. But once you've done that, move forward and the only other piece of advice i can say is you know that one of the things that i really have learned you know i've created i've learned you can create a rapid growth business out of anything but the thing i can promise you is there's nothing worse than a rapid growth business you know in a business you can't stand with customers you don't like mm-hmm. right so the truth is that you want to follow your passion because if you're going to start your own business and you're going to make mistakes or it's going to be hard it's got to be something that you really love otherwise you're going to get to a point you're like this was supposed to be easy this was supposed to be my money maker now it's hard i'm just going to give up and that's what i find happens a lot of people are in the wrong game so when they lose they cash in their chips
0: well, I think there's a fundamental there. I mean, you said a lot in that that you know, and and I r- totally relate to it. I mean, I can't. I've made millions. I've lost millions. I've made more. I've lost more. Like it's it's been a journey. Interestingly enough, and I think that's the, the fundamental thing is that as I talk to some people that I admire who have accomplished a lot in their life, I mean, that that that's the journey. That's the path. You know, it's not about failure. It's about you know, it hasn't worked out to your point. You know, it's it's, it's it hasn't worked out yet. You know, there's that that. Imp- important word that you add to that conversation which is yet and that it's all going forward it's all part of the journey and you've got to enjoy the journey uh, more than you really look you know you want to look forward to the outcome and celebrate that moment in time my wife Stephanie who's an Olympic coach you know mental performance coach uh, she just got back from Vegas at the time of this where you know her teams she's they've got several world teams in in ice skating dance and her team her teams took the podium gold, silver, bronze, and then fourth and sixth. I mean, amazing accomplishment and all that. But what I'm blessed to have been working with athletes over many years, I see that mindset. And you talk about failure, you talk about, you know, being, a, you know, a quarter of a point off the podium, let alone, uh, you know, bronze versus silver versus gold. And the mindset that it takes to get back on the ice to train again, you know, another six hours a day and all the things that they've got to, there is a, there's a fundamental understanding that, You're going to fail, and it's actually an expectation, and that's where you improve from, that's where you grow from. Now, I want to just talk to you about some of the business that you talked about. There's two conversations I want to have with you. Number one is around mindset, but what you use the word passion. I often get into a values-based conversation and you know these the, the biggest failures I've had is when I've lost a connection in my business to my highest values. I've I've let myself go down a path of honoring somebody else's values and that has fucked me up every single time. And so if I'm not staying connected to my values and taking that path, being willing to let go of some really nice people or some maybe not so nice people, I don't make anybody else's values wrong. It's just that they're not mine and we don't align. I can't do business in that way. You talk about passion. I talk about values. Is there a distinction? Uh, what's your do you have a values based conversation that you share with entrepreneurs or people in general?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, they I absolutely agree they're different things. Uh, and just going back to the last conversation just quickly, one thing I will tell people is when we go into an exam, we're always looking to get that perfect score. Mm-hmm. The truth is there's no perfect score in business. Mm-hmm. The, the truth is that you're just trying to get the highest grade and then you've got to make a decision. Grades by whose standards is the next question. And this mm-hmm. is where values and passion really start to, to play into that, right? Because... Mm-hmm. Here's the thing I can tell you. My first business selling telecommunications, I mean, it turned over more than a million dollars in the first year. By year three, we're the largest brokership for B2B cell phones in the country. Mm-hmm. But here's what I noticed. First thing is that I started to become very superficial because I wasn't, there was no intrinsic value to what I was doing. I was making lots of money, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really enjoying the environment. If somebody had mentioned another call rate to me, I was going to go insane. And I didn't love what I do. So, mm-hmm. from a point of passion, you know, I, I mean, when you're young and you don't have any money, you can get pretty passionate about making money until you have money and then you realize, what am I actually doing? Mm-hmm. Now, that you know, I think it was Jim Kerry that said, everyone should get the opportunity to be a millionaire just once to realize how insignificant it is in mm-hmm. actual life. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yes, passion is clearly important. And then you have values. Now, one of the things that I will say is that I didn't, I wasn't passionate about selling telecommunications plans because I didn't feel that it really allowed me to really transform the world right i found the more i was helping people succeed the more passionate i got and what i found was that when i was selling call rates i mean let's be truthful i mean a dollar saved is five dollars made sure so if i save people a hundred dollars off their phone bill every month that's five hundred dollars in revenue i could say that because of me these people didn't need to make six thousand dollars extra a year who cares right so for me from a passion perspective it really wasn't there from a values perspective you always had this um, salesperson on your team that closed deals, even if it wasn't in the customer's best interest. Mm. And I was one of those people that would get rid of that rep because I was like, I don't want that person on my team, right? They, they, yes, they, they got a deal, they got great money. But they ripped off the customer, and who wants somebody? Oh, it'll come back to bite you. And every time you let that door open, mm. right? They'll end up canceling. Something will go wrong. You'll feel it some way, shape, or form later. And you're 100% right. Every time you encroach on your values, something goes wrong. Like somebody reaches out to me for a speaking event. and I don't feel like I'm the right fit. I know that I'm going. Like yes, I might get paid really well for it. But if I go there, I'm going to feel really bad about it. And I promise you, there's always going to be some event that'll offer me a gig on the same day. And now I've accepted this one that I don't want to do, and I've missed out on the one that I do want. To to do so. I hundred percent agree. We have to do things that are aligned with our values, and this is interesting. Uh, the whole concept around save the world or make money is something I play with all the time with small business owners, right? Because one of the things that I find is a lot of customers spend their a lot of. People spend or small business owners spend their life convincing and controlling clients because their value system says that if somebody needs my help, I should give it to them, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is if they're not ready for that help, if they're not willing to pay for that help, they may not actually take action on it. So a lot of times, you know, but let's look at it from purely financial perspective. I charge money for my services. Why do I charge money for my services? One is I find the more that I charge, the more work people actually put into things. So I actually get better results. My testimonials have got better, right? I've got 150 testimonials. You go from the beginning, they love me. Now they they love me even more because I'm charging more, which means they did more work. Now that was because they were more committed to the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Most people say, and you know, I love the people that set goals like I'm going to donate my money to charity straight away, or I am, you know, I'm going to charge this amount because I want to help this demographic of people, or whatever. Here's the way I look at it my business is all about making profit. Now, that's what business is. Now, I'm on a mission to help introverts realize that they're not second class citizens, their path to success is just different. I am here and put on this earth because I could have done anything, I chose to do this to help introverts realize there are three things outside the scope of their functional skill that because they're usually amazing at their functional skill, but when they focus on those, they truly can have a rapid growth business they love. That is the mission. That is the reason why I'm not selling telecommunications. This is Mm. what I believe in. Sure. That being said, I don't delude myself into saying that my business isn't about making a profit. Now, what I do with that profit is my choice. For instance, we pump a ton of money into creating new content that I share for free out with the world. yes. We do donate money. Yes, we do a whole bunch of things that are about the betterment of other people, but I do that with my profit. I don't do it by discounting the person that wants my help because those people that I discount end up not applying the skill sets the right way. Mm. So I'm passionate about my business. I'm focused from a value set on helping the demographic of people as well, and I don't convince somebody. You know, I get a product-based company or a big billion-dollar tech company that comes out and says, will you work with us? And I'll ask them questions before I agree to the deal because it needs to align with my values. But values and passion are different things. Passion is we can do anything. We have to choose to do something that really sets us alight. Values are the way we choose to do business and the way way we choose to interact with people and have and associate with the people that interact with us. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I will say is that a lot of people have this problem about whether or not they believe that they can make money doing what they're passionate about. Now, Jim Carrey, we we talked about him before, has a Mm. famous quote. You know, he was, I mean, for those that don't know, he's a really famous comedian. And he he won this award at his university. And he's brilliant.
0: You know, something I got to say, I'm a big fan of Jim Carrey as he's (laughs) aged in terms of acting aside, I mean, his art aside, uh, I've become a fan of him just philosophically how he looks at life. And some people think he's just a whack job, but I tell you what, he is just a a fascinating man and love his philosophy and outlook on life. But anyway, so if you're not a Jim Carrey, if you don't know Jim, who he is, or you haven't paid attention to him outside of his movies, pay a little attention to Jim. He's a, he's a very wise dude. I like him a lot.
1: Absolutely. And I will say in the media at the moment, he does sometimes come across as a whack job. <laughs> yeah. so, and this is the other thing. Just because somebody comes across as a whack job, don't like if, if you think at the end of this interview that I'm a whack job, I'm fine with that. But if you take one nugget out of this and apply it and it changes sure. your life, don't disqualify that one piece of nugget that can transform your life Mm. just because you don't feel you don't like me right right? it's it's fine you can take that and then build it onto what everything else that you have Mm -hmm. so he was at a university speech and he said you know my father was a really funny man and he could have been a famous comedian but he decided to make the safe choice instead and become an accountant the practical choice if you like He said many years later, his father lost his job. He was laid off and the family had to do what they could do to survive. I mean, Jim Carrey was a janitor at his own high school. If you can imagine how embarrassing that was just to help support the family. He said, I learned a great deal from my father, but nothing more important than you can fail at what you don't love, so why not change? So you can fa- you can fail at what you don't like, so why mm. not take a chance at what you love? Yeah. Now, the thing that I take from that is, and here's the thing that I've discovered. You know, I worked with an insurance, um, an insurance individual, you know, in the past. And, I mean, if you think about walking up with somebody in a networking room and saying... You know, it doesn't matter how nice you are to them up front. You say you sell insurance, and the very first thing you see is their eyes explode out of their... Like, how do I get away from this person? I don't want to be sold insurance. And as an introvert, he said, I find that really uncomfortable. And I said, well, why did you get into insurance? He said, well, I'm just really... I, I really want to help people. And I said, okay, well, all sorts of people? And he said, well, yeah, everybody. I said, all right, let's be honest. Somebody that earns 50000 or somebody that earns two fifty. He said, well, obviously the person that earns two fifty because they can afford more insurance. I'm like, see how that doesn't fit with passion? Mm. I said this makes you when you go to networking events. How can you not feel like, oh, Patrick, I'd love to have you as a client because I'm just dying to buy a new car, right? You, you just can't get separate that. So we have to focus on passion. And I said, all right. So the person that's 250, it doesn't sound like there's a passion element to that. So let me ask you a separate question. What about a person? That has hustled through primary school and high school, grew up poor, got a scholarship to go to Harvard, graduated from Harvard with honors, ended up getting that C-level executive job, makes two fifty a year, has a staff of ten, and you know they're, they're successful. Versus the person that probably didn't even graduate university, but they saved up every penny, they bought their own business and or started their own business, and now they have a staff of ten, and they make two fifty a year. And he said, well, obviously, the small business owner. I'm like, why? I mean, the guy worked really hard to, or girl worked really hard to get into Harvard. He said, well, I just feel like they deserve it more. I'm like, explain that for me. And he said, well, I've I've got a grandfather who saved up every day to buy a farm. He worked in that farm for many years. And at the end of that period, you know, he got sick and he couldn't support the farm. And he had to still labor every day. So he had to sell the farm to deal with his health issues. He said, I watched my grandfather just fade away in front of a TV in a little apartment for the last 10 years of his life. So I just never want to see somebody end up like that. So my response was, well, how would it feel to wake up every day and help the hustlers of the world, the people that create something out of nothing, not end up in second-class retirement? He said, oh, I would love that. I said, well, let's focus on that then. So we called him the hustle lifeguard. Now, with my Australian accent, it's hard to hear, but I mean the person that saves you when you're drowning, right? So the hustle lifeguard. And when he goes to networking events now, he calls himself the Hustle Lifeguard. People say, what exactly is that? And instead of saying all the insurance products he offers, he talks about the thing that he loves to see as an introvert, sorry, a a small business owner that goes and creates something out of nothing. He just hates to see these people end up in second-class retirements. And then he leads into his, his mission and a story of his grandfather or a client that he helps. His business transformed all because he started talking about passion. Here's the thing, we all, we all in life choose to do something because we're passionate about it. Mm. But then because we don't niche down, because we don't focus on it, especially introverts, we're so logical and practical minded that we don't really talk about passion because we don't know how to articulate it. When we're business owners, we feel uncomfortable when we're talking to people face to face because mm. it feels like we're just trying to get paid. If we're a career professional and we're trying to have a dialogue with somebody, then you know it feels like we're self-promoting. It feels like we're trying to get a promotion or get our KPIs or look good. The truth is that if we focus on what we're passionate about, all of a sudden it becomes super comfortable. Like I talk about the fact that I'm passionate about a small business owner that had enough belief, talent, and skill in themselves to go and start a business for their own, but they get stuck in this. But I hate seeing them get stuck in this endless hamster wheel struggling to find interested people, trying to set themselves apart and make the sale. Then I go into my mission in life, which we talked about already, and then I'll tell a story. Maybe the story of Nick that I just shared with you or the story of Wendy, which I share in my books, that helps people realize that it's not their fault that they're failing. They just need to know these three strategies. Whatever you do, if it comes from a point of passion, it feels so much more congruent, so much more comfortable. And then next thing you know, if you do this, you'll start calling yourself an ambivert because all of a sudden, networking, sales doesn't feel so uncomfortable.
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring up, you know, you talk about passion, you've also mentioned mission, I use the term purpose, all kind of come together in in the same way. But there's a psychology behind it, you know, without getting into a whole deep conversation around it, understanding is that we're all driven as human beings to, number one, be a contribution at some level, in some way, we just are and to have significance. You know, the minute people quit feeling significance, they go into depression, they get into all sorts of, you know, mental and emotional states that, are you know, but a lot of people don't want to they don't want to acknowledge the need of significance because they read it as ego and all of the things that go in behind all that. The point is this, is that contribution and significance is a normal kind of human characteristic, a behavior that we all, or not even a behavior, but it's a characteristic that we all have. And when we start to understand that, own it, that's what lights us up in terms of how do we arrive at that passion, how mission, purpose. So when I look at my own purpose, what I call purpose is, you know, uh, is supporting people in being their greatest selves and living their best lives. So I make decisions based on that whether it be in business or in life or who I interact with uh, to the degree that I interact I'm always looking is is how I can support that. That's my contribution, that's where I get significance. That works. Passion same way. So you know, when we look at all of that and start to break it down, some of it is I see and and I want to ask you because of the work that you do is I think that people don't get grounded. When we talk about, we don't I don't know what my passion is. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what my mission is. Then how do you create a life? And how do you create the life? You know Because they're working backwards from, I just want to make more money, generally, uh, often is the case. So if you're coaching somebody through that process, what are you suggesting or what are you identifying? I'm not clear on my question yet, but I guess where I'm going with it, Matthew, is that do you see how often people aren't really clear on what their mission is? And would you start there with people?
1: Well, absolutely. But there's also people that know that they have a mission, but they don't know how to fit it into what Mm. they do in their J-O-B or their business, right? Because let's face it, in business, we have to be practical, right? We've got to make money. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not the truth, by the way. Every time Mm. you focus on being practical and making money, you make (laughs) less money. That's what I've discovered (laughs) over and over again. But the problem is it seems counterintuitive. Now, the truth is, if we're all about save the world, Well, that's not a business either. That's why I say you've got to focus on profit, but you can choose when you make money how you spend that money. I invest back in my business. I invest back into customer education. You can donate money. You can do anything you choose to do. You can look after your grandparents. Whatever you want to do, it's your choice. But if you're not making money, one of the things I always say is who do you think saves the world more? more? Bill Gates or the guy holding the peace sign out in front of the train station? Well, it's... Bill Gates, right? So you have to make money to save the world. Mm -hmm. So don't fool yourself. What you're saying is, oh, if I want to save the world, is that I want to take the easy route to saving the world, which never works. Now, one of the exercises, and by the way, I'm going to explain this briefly, but uh, I have a podcast called The Better Business Coach as well. And I think it's episode 17. It's called Forget About Goals, Why is the Key to Success? So the reason why I get people to do this is one of the exercises I talk about in that is to set three business goals and three uh, or three career goals um, if you're an employee, um, and then three personal goals. One, selfish to yourself, because that's the one that drives you, right? Now, the thing that I find is that, I mean, the goals part's really a means to an end. They write their goals, so what? Then I ask them to summarize each one of those goals in 250 words or less, including why it's important to them. Now, By the way, choosing six goals, most people really struggle with that because they're like, I want to choose a hundred goals. But then, I mean, people do that all the time. They set a hundred goals. They never achieve any of them. They set a hundred more. So I'm like, no, just pick six that are important. Let's focus on that. The next thing is they pick the grandiose goals, but they haven't hit a goal in a long time. So I'm like, make the goals smaller, make the goals smaller, but make the time period shorter, knock them out of the park, build that self-efficacy around goal attainment, celebrate the achievement and then replace them. But connecting with the goals is really important so people say i want to make this much money firstly they focus on revenue not profit if they're a small business which is crazy because i can show you a way to make a hundred thousand dollars a year and spend 150 on facebook ads sound good to anyone probably not so the thing is i focus on profit the the next thing though is i say okay what i want you to do is set your three business goals and your personal goals including why it's important to you and you find the high achievers are really good at writing their their goals when it comes to writing their why it's not that important to them. And they they realize they've inherited that goal from their mother, their father, I don't know, drunk roommate they had in college. They just hear these things and like, that's what I want. They spend the rest of their life charging after it, but they don't think it through. So this forces them to really relook really at what they want. And all of a sudden you start to see passion, mission and driving why come to these why statements that but the goals are completely replaced with something that's a lot more important to them. So that really shifts things. Now for an introvert, I'd find that a lot of times they're not trying, they don't inherit their goals as much, but they have such a practical or logical focus that because of that, the goal, the why's don't really have any strong I care element. So we add that in. So that's transformative, you know, for a lot of people. The other thing is by getting people to focus on just six Six goals. Like in neuro linguistic programming, we learn we're presented with two million bits of information every single second. Our brain's a supercomputer, but Mm. it only processes about 126. So we tend to delete, distort, and generalize everything we see, feel, hear, and touch based on our beliefs, our values, and past experiences. And a subset of that is our goal. So while I'd like to think I'm a great coach, just getting that 126 bits of information going in the same direction, as opposed to taking you in different directions, which means you can work really hard going nowhere has transformative difference. different people see opportunities that never really existed before but they were right there in front of them really the whole time now once we have all of that one of the other things that I really focus on this goes this is what I call my, my you know I talk about my, micro-goaling right so shorter term goals that you can knock out of the park and then make it feel like it's easy to create that momentum and the number one that I like is what I call an independence goal which a lot of people they say oh, I want to make a million dollars by the end of the year Number of clients that I get that say that, and I'm like, dude, it is September, and you've made thirty grand, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, the realism isn't there. But the secondly is, somebody that's making thirty thousand dollars a year wouldn't even know how to spend a million dollars, or wouldn't care about what they spent it on, right? So, why focus on that goal? It puts a lot of stresser. It makes it uh, stress. It makes it really daunting. So what I suggest is creating what I call as an independence goal. Now, some people will say that happiness doesn't increase after 75000 I would actually disagree. But that being said, some people have that number. You know, I worked with a client, Derek Lewis, and he was one of those, it was October and he wanted to make a million dollars next year. And I'm like, yeah, I've not seen that happen, especially the way you're planning on running your business. So I said, set me one of these goals. I want you to make a profit independence goal, i.e. I'm not living on champagne and caviar, but I'm not living on bread or gruel either. I said, come back to me with that number. And he came back to me with this number, which was 58,000. And, you know, the why behind it was powerful, you know, health insurance, you know, supporting his family, you know, the fact that he could do what he loved and not feel beholden to anybody. Right, you know, I didn't have to take that deal if I don't like it. You know, I don't have to trade in my values for money because I need my kids to eat. All those sorts of things. Now, what was interesting is, you know, he'd made twenty-seven thousand in two thousand and thirteen, and twelve thousand by October of two thousand and fourteen. Within the space of two weeks, he'd almost hit that goal. He made forty thousand dollars. Now, sure, we created a unified message, we discovered his niche, we built out a sales system. But within six weeks, he'd made eighty thousand. What was interesting? So he knocked out the goal out of the park. The relief he felt, but the business that he wanted to build after he hit that milestone transformed. He went from, I want to have 10 ghostwriters working with me, every one of them, you know, selling 10 books where they charge, you know, you know, 200, uh, you know, they make 200,000 a year. I get hundred, they get hundred. to I don't want to have 10 staff working for me. I'm an introvert. That would drive me nuts. And I love traveling around that I've got all this flexibility. I want to have a retail store when he, uh, you know, where people can come and buy books. And then there's all these training centers. But well, when he hit 120, which was his next goal, that goal disappeared because he's like, I don't want to have this boat anchor. I go to Switzerland to work with authors. I go to you know, um, London to work with authors. My kids love coming. Who's looking after this office that we've got and this training center and this bookstore? So all of a sudden, his goal changed again. So what I find is by focusing on your goals and really connecting with your passion and microing them, because the truth is, if you go out that far, you can't really connect that with passion because it also doesn't feel realistic. So come super far in. Work out what you want, knock that goal out of the park because it gives you an opportunity to look up and say, Do I what do I want next? And also Based on the new opportunities that are afforded to me, the new education that I had, I now see all these other opportunities, these other ways of doing things. And because of that, the way, I mean, you can work really hard, head down to get to a million dollars over the next five years, but the way you get to a million dollars might change dramatically. Now, I don't say you won't hit a million dollars. I say that you may hit it a lot faster and a lot easier if you look up along the way.
0: Got it. You know, and that, that it all speaks to uh, there are no unrealistic goals, just unrealistic timelines. So, Matthew, thank you so much for all of your insights. Um, we'll put it in the show notes, but what website or where do you want to send people to learn more about you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, if you want to check out um, my books, you know, my publisher hates me when I say this. You don't need to buy my books. Yeah. You can go to the introvertsedge.com and the, there you'll find, well, you'll find the first chapter for my sales book. And, you know, it'll help you first get over that you believe you can sell as an introvert. And then it'll give you the seven step process. If you do nothing more than look at what you currently say and fit it in under those headlines, you'll realize there's some things out of order, there's some things that don't fit. Throw that out. You shouldn't be saying it to clients. Mm-hmm. And then you'll realize there's some gaping holes, usually around asking great questions, telling great stories. If you just fill in the gaps and put it in order, you'll double your sales in the next 60 days. And you can get that at the introvertsedge.com. You can also go to the introvertsedge.com forward slash networking and you can do the same thing. Overcome your ability that you can network and find the networking system there in the first chapter. My belief is that's the thing that's really going to transform you. You can find out more information about me at matthewpollard.com. But I really recommend, you know, follow me on social media. You know, we put a ton of videos out of free content on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, on on LinkedIn, which is my primary profile to reach out to. You know, go and learn. I mean, the biggest thing is, I think Abraham Lincoln says, you know, um, if I was given six hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first four sharpening the axe. Yeah. You know, what most small businesses do is akin to just keeping on chopping. It's, it's time to sharpen the axe. But sharpening, you eventually have to go back and cut down the tree, right? So I would suggest set a period of time to consume my books and content, but then start taking action on the information. That's where you'll get your results.
0: Fantastic. So as we wind the down, I do a few rapid fire questions for you. Sometimes they're not so rapid fire, but let's try it anyways. Favorite book that you have or that you're likely to gift aside from your own? Do you have one?
1: yeah absolutely so um i i love a myth a great book rich yep. dad poor dad another good good book yep. Four-hour work week i think as long as you don't actually believe you're going to get to four sure. hours yeah. um but buy into the concept yep. another really good book
0: awesome iphone or android iphone okay favorite swear word <sighs> bugger oh geez okay good for you um favorite <laughs> favorite well
1: australian right <laughs> australians they bug all the time yeah yeah
0: yeah favorite uh, inspirational quote do you have one there's many uh, i know I
1: think we gave two we gave two so um the henry ford quote whether you think you can or you think you yeah. can't you're right yeah. um, and the other one that i that i mentioned i won't, you know it's a bit longer so i'll leave it for that
0: okay if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you get to the gates
1: welcome please come in
0: <laughs> beautiful do you have a favorite tune or a favorite band
1: Uh, I do like Metallica.
0: Favorite movie?
1: Favorite movie. Well, that's a tough one. Probably The Last Samurai.
0: Yeah, that is a good one. And Matthew, last of all, what are you grateful for?
1: You know, I'm grateful every day for where I am. Um, It's really hard to pinpoint to just one thing. Mm -hmm. I think especially right now, you know, there are a thousand things that I could be grateful for. For today, you know, I'm grateful that, you know, I'm looking outside beyond the part that no one can see we have a full forest view and you know we're in north carolina so i'm watching all the leaves i'm pretty sure they've changed color while i was watching this while we're going through this interview so if you see me dart off like that it's because i'm really enjoying it at the
0: moment fantastic i'm grateful as always for my guests and uh thank you matthew for your time your energy your wisdom and uh you know sharing uh, those insights of your journey i appreciate it
1: it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me on
0: ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at That's ceo at r-e-i-n canada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick O.